0: It's a great honour for me to be here at the Empire Club of Canada today, which is arguably the most famous and historically relevant speaker's podium to have ever existed in Canada. It has offered its podium to such international luminaries as Winston Churchill, Ronald Reagan, Audrey Hepburn, the Dalai Lama, Indira Gandhi, and closer to home, from Pierre Trudeau to Justin Trudeau. Literally generations of our great nation's leaders alongside with those of the world's top international diplomats, heads of state, and business and thought leaders. It is a real honour and a distinct
1: privilege to be invited to speak to the Empire Club of Canada, which has been welcoming international diplomats, leaders in business and in science and in politics, when they stand at that podium, they speak not only to the entire country,
2: but they can speak to the entire world.
3: Good afternoon, fellow directors, past presidents, members, and guests. Welcome to the 118th season of the Empire Club of Canada. My name is Kelly Jackson. I am the President of the Board of Directors of the Empire Club of Canada and Associate Vice President at Humber College. I am your host for today's virtual event, Realizing the Potential, The Role of Hydrogen in Canadian Transportation. This event is part of the Fuel for Thought Virtual Events Series, a collaboration between the Empire Club of Canada and the Canadian Fuels Association. I'd like to begin this afternoon with an acknowledgement that I am hosting this event within the traditional and treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit and the homelands of the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee and the Wyandotte peoples. In acknowledging traditional territories, I do so from a place of understanding the privilege my ancestors and I have had in this country since they first arrived here in the 1830s. I want to recognize just over a month ago across Canada, many dedicated time on the first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation to learn more about the experiences of Indigenous children who were forced to attend residential schools. Many of those individual stories are untold, buried with them in the land. And many survivors who tried to tell their stories were not believed. I hope we continue to find ways throughout the year to continue to honor these survivors and to hear their stories. As we connect past actions to present realities, listening and learning from each other is so important. We encourage everyone tuning in today to learn more about the traditional territory on which you work and live. The Empire Club of Canada is a nonprofit organization, and I'd like to take a moment to recognize our sponsors who generously support the Empire Club and make these events possible and complimentary for our supporters to attend. Thank you to our partner in the Fuel for Thought virtual event series, the Canadian Fuels Association, and thank you also to our season sponsors, Bruce Power, Canadian Bankers Association, Liuna, and Waste Connections of Canada. I want to take a minute to remind everybody who's participating today, that this is an interactive event. And that means that those attending live are encouraged to engage with our speakers by taking advantage of the question box by scrolling down below your on-screen video player. We will try to incorporate as many questions as possible throughout the discussion. If you require technical assistance, please start a conversation with our team using the chat button on the right hand side of your screen. And we also invite you to share your thoughts on social media throughout the event using the hashtags you will see displayed on the screen. To those watching on demand at a later date, and to those tuning in on the podcast, welcome. It is now my pleasure to call this virtual meeting to order. I am delighted to welcome Sean McCarthy, Senior Counsel at Sussex Strategy and former national business correspondent covering global energy for the Globe and Mail, Mark Kirby, President and CEO, Canadian Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association, Colin Armstrong, President and CEO, HTech, and Wayne Leite, Manager, Hydrogen Commercial, North America, Shell. If you'd like to learn more about our guests today, please scroll down below the viewer and you can find their full bios. Achieving Canada's goal of reaching net zero by 2050 will require a range of solutions and to get there we will need a variety of clean fuel types and alternatives as well as significant investment in new technologies and upgrades to existing infrastructure. Today's panel will discuss what role hydrogen and fuel cells can play in low carbon solutions with a focus on our national transportation network and needs. I'd like to turn it over now to Sean to get today's discussion started. Sean, over to you.
2: Thank you very much, Kelly, um, and thank you to the Empire Club for the uh, invitation uh, to me to moderate this panel. I'm always fascinated to hear uh, how the how the hydrogen economy is rolling out and what role it might play in in uh, in our commitments around GHG reduction and and transition. So I'm looking forward to this uh, conversation. Um, to start off with, just a reminder that a About a year ago, the Canadian government released a uh, hydrogen strategy that detailed a lot of the challenges, but also the opportunities. Uh, that hydrogen can play in the Canadian economy and that really covered um, the gamut you know from production through distribution to end use we're going to be focused today um, really on the transportation side of that uh, story there there is a much bigger story Uh, we could talk all day about it Um, but but uh, this this panel is really focused on the transportation side um, and in in all of its uh different elements uh that, that will go into it so uh, without further ado let's let's jump in with the panel and and a year into the uh to the hydrogen strategy uh gentlemen um where where does that impact your outfit and and how do you see uh your uh, organization fitting into the strategy and let's start with you Colin, and and then we'll work our way down yeah, thanks, uh, Sean, and I'm uh, yeah, very pleased
4: to be here. Um, so HTEC is a hydrogen energy um, uh, developer and operator, so we're involved in the production, distribution, and the fueling stations. Um, in, uh, in working with the federal government on the strategy, um, we wanted to make sure all the elements were involved. So there's a lot of gluing things together, and that's what we actually see HTEC doing. There's the, the users, it's all very new for There's the uh, fueling station uh, hosts such as Shell, who's on the line, or other groups that we work with. And then there's the um, production side of it. So the strategy has been great. It's laid the foundation for us to think about our strategy and opportunities, as well as work with a a fair number of the provincial governments to get their strategies in place. And from that, uh, we go out and look for investors to attract financing to the sector and to ourselves. We've actually been quite successful in that. And the strategy came up a lot of times in those discussions. We recently attracted a little over $200 million to the company, and there was a lot of discussion around uh, the federal strategy as well as the state of the provincial. Um, so outside investors looking in uh, felt a lot more confident knowing that foundation was in place, and, and it seemed to transcend a bit beyond the political party's uh,
5: time in office. So that was uh, that was important as well. Good. And, and let's, uh,
2: Wayne, and then we'll go to you, Mark.
5: Sure. Hey, Sean, it's great to be with you today. And, and really, I enjoy talking about hydrogen fuel in Canada. Uh, my main message today is that it's happening. Hydrogen fuel is is really starting to happen. And from our perspective, that creates some great choice for customers in their freedom to move, whether it's individuals in their private vehicles or or commercial operations moving around freight. And that really, that choice is really needed to Realize the kind of widespread adoption that that policy is calling for. Um, I, I think Canada's um, hydrogen strategy, as Colin articulated, is great and can really foundation for Canada to realize its climate and economic ambitions um, through low carbon solutions and and perhaps to be a world leader in that regard. Uh, implementation is really key. Uh, maybe as a bit of context about Shell, we've been developing hydrogen fuel in the late 60s technologies, codes, and standards. Think you know, rocket fuel and spacecraft. Uh, since the late 90s, for us, was the demonstration phase. Several different hydrogen fueling stations serving the prototype vehicles, kind of showing that it could be done. Uh, since the early 2010s, for us, it's been the pre-commercial phase. And that is really driving the cost and performance improvements that enable the more widespread uh, launch. We're operating about 50 hydrogen stations globally now. We've just begun a program of developing 50 uh, in California. And as Colin alluded to, we're happy to host uh, stations in Vancouver. Um, we've also been the first three of stations fueling heavy duty trucks, freight from the LA and Long Beach, where about 40% of all the imports to the US uh, land. Um, and in all of that, we've done dug- capacity of the fueling stations while cutting the off twice now. So it's that pace of progress that really opens the opportunities. So uh, I think it's all good context. There's a growing range of vehicles. There's a growing uh, range of fueling stations and and improvements there. This progress is really what we've seen happen elsewhere in solar panels and wind turbines and batteries. So hydrogen is um, on a similar journey.
2: Mark?
5: Well, thanks, Sean. I appreciate the opportunity
1: to speak here with the Empire Club and uh, and I appreciate the joining the other two panelists here. I'm Mark Kirby. I'm President CEO of the Canadian Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association. So we're an industry and academic NGO. We have over 200 members, including some of the world's leading sector companies and research organizations, um, including both Shell and HTEC. And, and Canada has been and remains for now a world leader. Um, and Now, prior to joining the CHFCA a couple of years ago, I I have been personally involved in hydrogen and and hydrogen-related companies in the private sector for close to 40 years. So producing, distributing, building equipment, using it for hydrogen in a range of applications and industries. But in the past two years, and particularly in the past year since the launch of the strategy, it really has been remarkable, uh, growing interest and excitement about the sector. So it really has changed from a question, you know, will hydrogen play a role in achieving net zero 2050? clearly will and a large role and and it's nor is it a question anymore of you know is this an economic opportunity it absolutely is and I think there's half a trillion in announced projects through 2030 and, and that's growing every day every day so really the question now is you know uh, how much of our energy will be supplied as clean hydrogen the strategy says 30 percent and and very pertinent here is you know how much of that share will Canada have of that op- economic opportunity Will we continue to be a leader with access to low cost and clean hydrogen? Or will we actually be disadvantaged versus our, our competitors? And I think those questions really come down to the, to the private sector. Um, you know, we know the economics are going to be there. There's a growing market demand for low carbon products and, and the governments, in spite of some of the stumbles in, uh, in the recent uh, uh, G20, uh, I think that we are going to see governments globally, including Canada, uh, putting in place policy and, and funding to underpin the economics. You know, obviously more needed, but, but that's coming, um, the products to use hydrogen will be there, including, you know, very cost-effective and high-performing fuel cell electric vehicles. And that where my member companies and leading OEMs around the world are seeing to that again, more needed, but, but you can sort of count on those coming. So really it's now up to the private sector. It's up to them to evaluate the fit of hydrogen products in their, in their operations. And, and I'm guarantee that for many, hydrogen will be the most economical and efficient means to decarbonize. It's secondly for those companies to demand more choice from their suppliers and to help bring those products to market with demonstrations and early deployments. And third, it's really to demand that clean hydrogen infrastructure, the production, the pipelines, the distribution and fueling stations, in the same way that we'd expect a clean power grid. And if you're an energy company, such as Shell, an oil and gas company, utility, a power producer, to start investing now in that clean hydrogen infrastructure. And, and by the way, just as a, a conversation starter, the starting point I think for that is, is hydrogen hubs. So it's a huge opportunity and I really look forward to discussing it further.
2: Good, so, so how then, we talked, you, you mentioned, Mark, the, the, the infrastructure that, uh, that is being developed. Um, there is a massive uh, infrastructure uh, in place, um, um, fossil fuel infrastructure, oil and gas, um but also increasingly electric um, infrastructure that is is uh, being rolled out um, um, how how does hydrogen fit into the existing and and the future as, as you look forward uh, to what needs to be rolled out the future infrastructure needs and and, and at what cost uh, um, um, is, is it going to be to to Gear up to to get the infrastructure required. So let's let's go back uh, in in reverse order here, and and feel free to jump in uh, anytime, uh, gentlemen. That uh, um, somebody says something that provokes you. <laughs>
1: Well, okay, I, it, it is going to be a big investment uh, and, and it's going to have to start very, very quickly. I will say uh, in the case of hydrogen, one of the nice things about it is that investment can have a positive payback. And we can talk further about that. But cer- clearly, I mean, we, we need, as we move from, you know, the in Canada, 75% of our energy now is supplied for a, as fossil fuels without management of, of, the, of the CO2 emissions. And we've got, you know, a, a, a few pathways that we can follow to, to shift that away. We can, we can electrify we can go to biofuels, we can go to hydrogen, we can go to uh, capture and sequestration, and we can do direct air capture. All of those are gonna be needed and all of them are gonna have to scale up enormously. And, and when you look at hydrogen, you know, we are we're a leading hydrogen producer already, we're a leading clean hydrogen producer already in Canada, but we need to scale up by an order of magnitude in our production capacity. And that's just part of it, that's just producing it. And we know we can do that. We also need to move it to markets, so we need pipelines, and we need to have the dispensing and fueling systems all across the country, which is what a company builds so that, and, and Shell, so that we can have the, the fueling stations that we need. Now, that's, that's, that's going to take investment. But again, as I'll say, the nice thing about it is there's a huge economic opportunity to supply those billions of dollars of, of hydrogen fuel that are going to be needed. And that is an economic opportunity that can provide a
5: payback on that, uh, on that equipment if things are done correctly.
2: Wayne, how does Shell see that? that yeah, that well,
5: I mean, I would start with with the basic benefit here, which is hydrogen fuel is nearly a one-for-one replacement to our hydrocarbon-based um, fuels, gasoline and diesel, um, That that much of this infrastructure is built around. So whether you're thinking about the kind of footprint density to fuel a large number of vehicles at stations, refueling stations, or a commercial fleet operation wondering how do I Continue to have the miles of freight movement efficiencies that I have with with diesel as a prime mover. Hydrogen offers that kind of direct replacement. Now the challenge has often been referred to as chicken or egg. Indeed, we have the difficulty of needing some new infrastructure for hydrogen, and really that in order to sell the first vehicle, it needs to be able to to find fuel. Um, the benefit, of course, is we get to build entirely new infrastructure, and, and so we can do that in a decarbonized, renewable way from the start. Um, and we start to see in other markets success in doing this. The role of policy seems to be to overcome that low initial utilization, the, the initial out of infrastructure to be um, light on day one and then ramping up over time. And also, by the way, to overcome this early mover disadvantage. The flip side of these this tremendous progress is that doing this tomorrow will be better and lower cost than doing it today. Yet we have policy that asks us to go very fast, and so uh, a good bridge there. Um, so some evidence, some proof points. You know, in in California, Shell was able to sell 100% renewable hydrogen last year, and will get to zero carbon intensity this year. So with the right kind of policy structures and signals, this challenge becomes a, a big opportunity. Good, Colin?
4: Yeah, and Sean, I think that's actually
5: a really good question, but I think it's
4: actually broader than most people are thinking. You know, when you, when you suggest infrastructure, you're actually thinking of the assets, but... Um, there's the uh, there's the talent as well as well as um, I think the business models. So when we say the the infrastructure, we we think of it much more holistically, and uh, it's it's super valuable. We have to be very smart on I, I personally think on how do we use the existing assets. And in our case, you know, we went to Shell and put their equipment at their site, right? So it's the same business model, the same consumer um, usage patterns. So we tried to build on that knowledge base uh, that, that's around the fueling station for safety for the for the um, people driving their cars so i think it's beyond beyond just the physical assets but in in whole we need to be very smart to um use the existing as much as we can to lessen the uh, the amount of investment that's needed and at the same time find those sweet opportunities for for new companies and for existing companies so um, you know, when we hire people, most of those are coming out of the oil and gas. So there's that whole knowledge base that is a is an infrastructure asset in our minds that, that we're using and transitioning to think about hydrogen and how uh, they can apply their skills in the engineering side or even the operations side. So, so two points. Yeah. Um, think a little bit broader when you think about the existing infrastructure to business and um, people skills as well as the assets themselves of, of pipelines or stations and then uh, let's be smart about how we use them so kind of putting that challenge out to people how do you how do you think about the the easiest path forward and uh, um, using hydrogen to manage your carbon to get to the net zero
2: good we, we've heard about uh, the hub concept um, anybody want to jump in on that uh, You mentioned how important it is. Why? What is it, and why is it important? I'll
1: I'll I'll jump into that one. (laughs) <laughs> near and dear to my heart um, and just to mention we're, I'm uh, co-chairing the uh, hubs uh, working group that is under the hydrogen strategy for Canada uh, and we invite uh, people to to join and participate in that uh, in that working group um, but there was a lot to what to unpack in what, what, uh, what Wayne and Colin said in terms of you know policy in terms of, of training but I, I think that uh, that chicken and egg question that was uh, mentioned by Wayne is, is really key. You know, when you see, look to California, where they've got over 10,000 cars being deployed, they're kind of getting past that. And they've got, they've got those chickens on the road. Um, when you, and they've also got the, the buses being deployed at, the, uh, at, the, um, uh, at their transit agencies. But in Canada, we, we, ha- we haven't got that many yet. We're starting to see them, but we need to see a, a lot more to provide that business case for that hydrogen infrastructure. And so one of the ways that we think is a, uh, is, is a good, and, and, and this, is, this is looking around the world at what has worked effectively in other jurisdictions, is to start thinking about clustering together the production of low-cost hydrogen with a number of applications. So low-cost hydrogen is going to be needed for industrial processing. It's needed in refineries. It's needed in chemical plants. It's needed in steel mills. That's a nice base load to produce industrial hydrogen. If you can capitalize that in areas and attract to that the deployments of trucks, of transit agencies, buses, uh, of cars, then what you can get is scale. And what you can get is the costs needed to give you long-term sustainable economics. So what we're trying to do now is look to see how do you, where and how do you put in place hubs? And it's not an easy task because you know, it's, it's hard to ask a, you know, a, a big industrial user to say, look, we want some of your hydrogen. To provide a fueling station, that, that's a, that's a challenging, um, you know, uh, effort for them to take on. But it's something we need to do. We're seeing that happening now in Edmonton, and there's a number of uh, locations across the country where there's uh, similar activities underway, and that is, we think, a good way to try and tackle that chicken and egg um, uh, challenge.
2: The the chicken and egg is also is is also. Um, as you say, where do you get the production, how, how do you break that? I've, I've seen, I know the, the federal government is supporting uh, some, some urban um, transit um, authorities to purchase hydrogen buses. Um, is that the kind of thing that's required or, or can this be a business-led uh, model that, that, especially around the hubs, is it, does it require government to be an active player, I suppose?
1: Well, I'd say I'd, I'd, I'd agree with Wayne on this one: is that yes, government is going to have a role to play in uh, enabling those early purchases, de-risking those early adopters, and in su- supporting and stimulating that that um, uh, that that are those early uh, infrastructure needs. But the key thing is that it, again, and I'll go back to my starting point: it starts with industry. What we need to do is say, is, say start having some discussions uh, around. Uh, locations pulling together parties that don't typically talk, um, so transit agencies and steel mills, and and start saying what what are the needs in this area, and then there's a there's a strong interest in a lot of areas. There's there's interest in transit companies, they're interested in trucking companies and others to start doing these deployments. So how do we pull those together and get? Uh, that that concentration those that that economy of scale that's needed to make sure that those those aren't just one-off demonstrations that go away as soon as the government funding is is done but actually have sustainable economics and continue operating and then that forms a you know a, a backbone across the country of deployments that we can build on as we move forward uh, to to more broad commercialization
2: Colin are you seeing that happen
4: Uh Yeah, definitely. There's uh, there's a lot of conversations going on, and I think Mark's right. You've got uh, different groups starting to go. Okay, I you know my demand is not big enough to really get the price of hydrogen where I need it to be. So if my neighbor per se also has a demand for hydrogen, then my price might drop in half. So so we do need to think in those terms um, in on on the supply side for sure. And and I think also on the the application side, I think Wayne suggests, you know, that the heavy duty trucks are coming. They're not necessarily here yet, but, You get a whole group of users, you start to put in that um, supply chain that's needed as well as the service chain. So, yeah, I know I think the insights in the federal strategy around hubs absolutely need to be built on and promote those conversations. And I mean, everyone's trying to figure it out. There's, um, but the fundamental uh, idea that there's, uh, it's a pretty integrated solution going forward that we need to start out thinking that way as as we go.
2: So, one of the areas that uh, that I think has been discussed broadly is where hydrogen fits um, vis-a-vis electric vehicles, um, and the the uh, the rule of thumb I guess that I always hear is that yeah, electric vehicles work better for for the uh, light vehicle uh, fleet, and hydrogen you're going to need hydrogen for the for the larger buses, trucks, uh, and, and even trains. Um, is, is that right? Uh, Mark talked about 20,000, I think it was 20,000. Was that the figure, uh, light vehicles in California uh, being uh, on the road now? So, so is that a competition? H- how, do we, how do we figure that out? And can we afford to build both, both infrastructures, so to speak?
5: Sean, maybe I could uh, start on that one. Um, mm-hmm. We At Shell, we're developing a manner of decarbonized fuels so developing charging for battery electric vehicles and fueling of uh, uh, advanced biofuels and uh, renewable natural gas into CNG vehicles and hydrogen. And so we take a pretty objective view on all those things. My job is to make hydrogen as good as it can possibly be so that it competes well. And then it will compete with those other options. From that lens, we see the basic value proposition with a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle of being all the benefits of an electric vehicle with all the convenience of fast refueling. And then battery electric vehicles, cell electric vehicles uh, from our view are very complementary, um, Important customer segments for both probably coexist in all vehicle classes one way to understand that is to translate from a light duty medium duty heavy duty kind of framing into the use case generally high output high use kind of use of the vehicle um, and then to customers some of us choose to purchase vehicles with that K not we use it um, all the time the other interesting thing for to think about is of the market so your household um, vehicle fleet you might have vehicles and as we look at markets like California where there's going on a million plug-in vehicles on the road most of those are still one of the household vehicles and the other is still an internal combustion engine of some kind so full adoption in households of electric vehicles might also have some diversity both for its strengths and a Hydrogen vehicle for its strengths, and then of course the commercial fleet world um, is wonderfully rich in its complexity—the kind of use case and duty cycles and route planning and tethered fleets—and you know back to Mark's um, uh, good points around hubs. So for all these reasons, very complementary. Last thing I'd say is uh, you know complementary in the vehicle components. Uh, a large number of these components on board the vehicle, electric motors and power electronics, et cetera, are shared. Um, and then also complementary and energy systems. I know we're talking about um, fuels and transportation primarily today, but as an energy company, thinking about organizing our reliable and affordable energy systems, having this molecule um, is is um, very beneficial.
1: Yeah, I'd like to build on that. I I just want to make the point that when you say electric vehicles, fuel cell vehicles are electric vehicles. They have electric drive. They have regenerative braking. They have batteries on them. The battery is smaller, and it's that that smaller amount of batteries replaced with a fuel cell and a hydrogen storage tank. And as Wayne said, that then gives you the fast fill capability and additional range. And uh, because that's lighter than the battery, it gives you additional payload. So the two of them really work together. We're, We're not you know, fuel cells are not competing with batteries. They're working together with batteries to provide a complete solution for electric vehicles to all internal combustion engine applications, whether that's on the road, whether that's in the air, whether that's marine, whether that's on rail. By by combining fuel cell and battery technology, you can get uh, uh, mobility solutions uh, in all applications. And, and then, as Wayne says, where you're going to choose to add in a, a, a fuel cell option is where you're going to want that productivity. Because you know the cost of of uh, keeping your truck drivers on the road, of, of keeping that maximizing that payload in your in your in your vehicles, uh, of having that ability to to and that that um, that flexibility, that resilience. We've learned a lot about resilience in the past uh, uh, year and a half, uh, two years. You know, having that resilience that you can move uh, trucks to different routes or or adjust your 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 operations is really important, and that's where. Uh, combining that battery technology and fuel cell technology together gives you the, the benefit. And then the other part of it is that um, when you look at the cost of your charging slash fueling infrastructure, as you start getting more and more vehicles and trying to charge them, you know, together in a maybe a limited time and a limited space, that's where uh, having an ability to to fuel rapidly with hydrogen uh, can be an advantage and it can be a very significant advantage at times. So, you know, in case of, of transit agencies, many of them now are, are seeing that, yeah, I can do one or two buses. I can do a few buses with, with batteries, but if I really want to do my full fleet, Um, then it's going to be more convenient for me and much cheaper to have a a small, compact hydrogen fueling system able to handle all my hundreds of of buses in a fairly short time versus trying to have a multitudinous charging system, which takes a long time and ties my buses up and then on route charging systems and so on. So they're finding that, again, that that mix is the best way to to decarbonize their operations.
4: Good. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm echoing everything. But uh, in my um, my mind, there's there's two sides of it. One is the supply side of the energy. Um, there's reasons to to have both from that side. There's also reasons on the uh, consumer side. Yeah, I had to. Uh, I drive a hydrogen car, fuel cell um, vehicle from uh, from Hyundai. I had to do about 550 kilometers the other day for for uh, a work trip and came home. My wife said, oh, can I take the vehicle to go out this evening? I said, yeah, give me about 10 minutes. I just got to fill it up on my way home. And and off she went to her evening event. So so I think there's 25% probably of people that, that are it's better for. There's 25% that electrically is better for. And then there's that 50% in the middle that's going to be Dependent on what you sell them, what they like, or what their neighbor does, very more influential than I say uh, the static side of things. So, um, super important to have both, and we, we find that um, as uh, as we talk to all the different consumers out there. Very good.
1: Yeah, I, I and the other, just to let in, I, you know, to your point, I think we have to tell the government and others that we don't have a choice. There, there is no choice between electric and, uh, and, you know, or and fuel cells and batteries and fuel cells. One is one going to be the entire solution. It is going to be a mix. And they need to make sure we're getting the infrastructure in for both. We need charging infrastructure. We need hydrogen fueling infrastructure. Nice thing about hydrogen fueling infrastructure, again, is that it can pay for itself. Um, you know, you you, you only need uh, uh, one fueling system to service you know a uh, hundred or a thousand cars, and that can that means that 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 station can make, get a positive payback, which is which is a nice feature of, of of hydrogen as we move forward.
2: Good. So let me ask one more, and then we're going to go. I'm starting to get some questions from the audience. But uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is is in Glasgow as we speak. Uh, they're opening the uh, COP26, where you know we're all looking to see greater ambition greater action not just ambition but action towards uh, uh, a net zero commitment um, from from Canada and, and others um, and he is he is uh, reconfirming I suppose uh, all of the uh, pieces of the liberal strategy you know the increase of carbon price to uh, to hundred seventy dollars by 2030, the low fuel standard, the commitments uh, on uh, ZEV vehicles by 2035. I know this is not an either or, but what policy drivers do you see as being the most critical, I suppose, in, in establishing the market and, and, um, and drawing that investment uh, that is required to, to build out the infrastructure? Well, I, Wayne, you want to jump in? Uh, sure. Sorry, Colin.
5: I'll, I'll, I'll just start with a few quick things, but I know all these topics are so big and rich, and we run out of time today to, to really do them justice. Uh, at the top of our house earlier this year, Shell announced our new our energy transition strategy called Powering Progress, which essentially sets out how we intend to accelerate the transition of our business to net zero by 2050 and step with it. And so, from that perspective, I think all of these movements are very well aligned, um, and I find that tremendously enabling as we try to to grow a hydrogen sector, which you know is not easy. Uh, all of what we are doing is not not easy. We generally find market-based mechanisms is the most uh, simple. Um, we find those that uh, separate the transportation market as um, particularly strong for hydrogen, because it is a harder to abate sector. And so clean fuel standards, low carbon fuel standards create um, create potentially a market with a somewhat higher carbon price uh, for this hard to abate sector. Uh, a lot of it is that interplay between the policies on the vehicle side, uh, demand, uh, pull and push kinds of um, supportive and creating kind of policies. Policies on the fuel side, because it goes back to chickens and eggs all at the same time, and so, uh, so I think those are those are the main um, policies. The good news also is that I think a lot of the trial and error or early innovation has been done, and so a lot of uh, effective policy mechanisms are now proven and can be transferred to the next. Uh, jurisdiction. One of the things that California did in its low carbon fuel standard was create a capacity crediting mechanism. Um, and it has proven to be policy magic. It has basically broken the stalemate of chickens and eggs. So the stations are being built and they're being built larger and it has made that all just at the moment when new hydrogen production is needed, that it should be renewable. And, and so in fact, this is, you know, activating the market here in California.
1: I could not agree more. Um, I think that the, uh, you know, the, 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 the policies have been shown around the world to actually lead to deployments. One is the you know, following the lead on, on what California's done is the, is the zero emission requirements. And that's, that's been shown in, in other countries as well that, that you need that, that driver for people to say, oh, OK, I, I really do need to get a zero emission vehicle on the road, whether that's a battery electric vehicle or a fuel cell electric vehicle. Um, and that means then to start looking hard at those choices means that the, uh, the OEMs make those, those vehicles available. But the other thing is the fueling side of it. And it's been really impressive to see what's been done in California. Now, Canada, we have a clean fuel standard that is coming to play and the government's congratulated for that. It's coming in. It's gonna provide some of that, uh, that incentive to decarbonize our fuel pool. And there are credits available for using hydrogen and for using batteries. We do have a concern though, in that the clean fuel standard as is currently being put forward, uh, may not give as much credit, uh, or th- those credits may not be necessary uh, for the oil companies and the, and the obligated parties due to the way it's structured. And so we think there's a real need to ensure that there is um, that those clean fuel credits are are uh, are required to come from from other fuel switching applications, as well as from upstream modifications in the refinery. So we really think there's a need to, um, to have some obligations on the obligated parties to to uh, get credits or to support uh, the, the, uh, the fuel switching process. That's one area. The other area as, 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 uh, is, as we mentioned, is capacity-based credits. Sounds very technical, but it really is enabling that companies like HTEC can then look forward and say, I know I'm going to get a certain amount of credits flowing in from the station when I build it. It may not be a great return, but I can get a return. And then as the load builds on it, that return will get better. But that is a key thing. You know, if it's your private sector company, you got to put money out there. Having some certainty that you're going to get those revenues coming in is key. And a clean fuel standard can do that, if worded correctly. Today, Canada's is not. And we would, so our, our two things to say to the, to the federal government is keep going with the clean fuel standard, but look at mechanisms to make sure that some of those credits have to come from fuel switching and make those credits capacity-based.
4: Okay, um, just, uh, real quick on that. Um, yeah, the, the ZEV mandates and the uh, low carbon fuel regulations uh, are what drive the hydrogen transportation to, to move into place. And, uh, and, and I think just as people are thinking longer term um, in, in other mandates, you need to think a little bit shorter term, like they've done in California. How do you how do you get to that end state? And what they've done? And they just tweak the policy? Very minor tweak, but it has huge ramifications. If you think about, um, yeah, we want to be here with this policy in five or ten years, but there's this build-up phase. How can we tweak things? <clears throat> and that's where the uh, the capacity thoughts have come in. And uh, uh, similar in British Columbia and in California, but we need to continue to think across the
1: nation how those two standards can help. Good. So now, I will say I'm interested in Green's to... comment on this, California has done a great job of moving forward and getting stations starting to be built, getting cars deployed, but they've run into a problem now with supply and there's been a shortage of hydrogen which has really limited some of the growth in the past years and, and now industry is struggling and moving fast to get that, to backfill that, that hydrogen supply, that clean hydrogen supply. But one of the things that we are trying to to avoid is getting into that same situation as we ramp up deployments in Canada. And again, we think that planning this out as hubs where you you start thinking about your supply end of it tied to the applications end of it tied to the the fueling stations might be a way to help us uh, avoid getting into that problem where we all of a sudden find ourselves being very successful in deployments and then having to scramble to backfill the, the hydrogen supply wanna try and see if we can move those forward in, in lockstep so that we really provide that, uh, you know, excellent transition and products uh, value to the, to the end
2: users. So we hear a lot about color coding the supply. You talk about the clean hydrogen supply. Uh, um, we, we hear a lot about the, the color coding of it, green hydrogen and gray hydrogen and blue hydrogen, um, which, which essentially is uh, using um, existing fossil fuel production um, of hydrogen um, which can create emissions, but, but then capturing and, and sequestering the emissions. Is that useful? How do we think about um, decarbonizing the transportation system uh, with a hydrogen supply that might come from various sources?
1: Again, we'll, we'll, you know, we we talk of clean hydrogen supply. The color codes are useful for people to understand the different production pathways. So uh, blue is where you start with fossil fuel and you um, take that to to hydrogen, and then you manage the the carbon emissions by either uh, you know capturing and sequestering it, or by um, uh, not allowing that CO2 to be emitted in the first place, producing elemental carbon, let's say, or a chemical. So there's you know that's that's a way to produce um, uh, the the hydrogen um, from fossil fuels. The saying is blue says that you are capturing CO2. It doesn't specifically say what its carbon intensity is, though. You still haven't got anything in place that says, well, what is the carbon intensity of that hydrogen? Same thing for for green. You have a situation with, with green refers to where you have you're using renewable energy to create your hydrogen. Now, everybody would love to use renewable energy, but we have a... Crises and we and and there's limited amounts of renewable energy available. So, you know, we're going to need both. We're going to need clean hydrogen from fossil fuels. We're going to need clean hydrogen from, from renewables. What we really need to make sure is we have standards in place that are global and that are well understood, that that measure and certify what is the carbon intensity, whatever the production pathway, blue, red, green, purple, orange, whatever. What is that carbon intensity? And then the policy backing to make sure that it is just not economical to uh, produce high carbon intensity hydrogen, whatever way you use, um, in, and that you need to be moving your, your producing and, and moving that hydrogen at, with low carbon intensity. We need that to provide public confidence that yes, hydrogen is indeed gonna result in GHG emission reductions. And we need that to make sure that we can capitalize on all the potential sources of hydrogen because we're gonna need a lot of hydrogen, We want it to be very cost effective, and so we need to capitalize on every uh, available pathway.
2: Colin, are you seeing in the market a a, a distinction at all um, in terms of carbon intensity of of the hydrogen? And I suppose one place where it might show up, uh, particularly as as the price starts rising, is, is in a carbon price.
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think when we talk to the end consumers, yeah, some want um, green, some want blue, to be honest, and some don't really care. Uh, I, I think the pricing mechanisms at the end of the day um, is, uh, you know, I don't think we necessarily need the end users to really drive that much on the supply side. I think we just have to decide it has to be decarbonized. So they've done their part. They've invested in the application or the vehicle that's gonna that has zero emissions coming out of their tailpipe. Um, we need to have the policies, like Mark says, that we gotta go to lower carbon colors. I, I'm fine with colors. They're, they're a great communication tool. You know, we talk to so many different people in so many different levels. It's for for a lot of them. It's it's a great communication tool. So I'm okay with that. But ultimately, yeah, we gotta drive to driving the carbon down uh, and uh, for whatever pathway we choose. And there's so many colors, and they're getting mixed together more and more every day. So
2: good. Wayne, I want to move on to some of the questions we're getting from, from the audience. And, and here's a basic one that I think probably doesn't get asked that often anymore, but for a general audience, it's, a, it's an important one. Is hydrogen safe? Is it safer than, say, using uh, um, petroleum products?
5: yeah thanks and and a good question to to even start the conversation with Um, as we develop fuel we uh, make sure that it is safe that's a a core aspect for us Um, the hazards with hydrogen are a bit different and so we handle it um, and approach safety a little bit differently on the positive side hydrogen is benign and it's buoyant these are good things that we want to take advantage of if there's an accidental leak of hydrogen it dissipates very quickly into the atmosphere and does not create any environmental harm in doing so so we want that to happen and production facilities and refueling stations so that um, a a release of hydrogen can can dissipate upwards Um, the hydrogen is a compressed gas so we make sure that if it releases and it's coming out under pressure there's a, a barrier that would block that from uh, hitting a person or property, so yeah, hid- hydrogen it, as it's being done is um, is being done well and in a safe
2: manner. Good. Another question then from the audience, and jump in whoever wants to take this. Can can the existing natural gas infrastructure, particularly pipelines, be um, be utilized for hydrogen? And uh, if so, to to what extent? And what are the hurdles? Maybe some additional investment might be required or not.
1: Um, I'll start on that and just say that that's an excellent question. I think it's one of the things we really want to try and do is take advantage of existing assets. And the answer to that is yes and no. Um, there's, there's certainly, um, you can start blending hydrogen into natural gas to decarbonize it up to a certain point. Uh, beyond that, you'll have to start making changes. Um, in some natural gas systems, those changes will be relatively minor. Uh, in other natural gas systems? No, it's a fairly significant change. The materials are, are, are maybe not compatible. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see as we move forward, whether we, as we move to needing more and more hydrogen, whether we convert pipelines or whether we build entirely new pipelines. We're gonna need pipelines for hydrogen. We're gonna to need to move large quantities of hydrogen from low cost production points to major urban centers and to tide water for export. So we're gonna need pipelines at some point. We can start with hubs. Uh, initially but we're going to have to start connecting those eventually so we need to start thinking that that whole process through of how do we move large quantities of hydrogen cost effectively Uh, theoretically you can do it in pipelines as almost as efficiently as you can move natural gas you can also convert it to carriers to ammonia to methanol to liquid organic hydrogen carriers so there's a lot of different ways as to how you move large quantities of hydrogen and i'd be very interested to hear wayne's comments and where 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 shell sees some of these uh these questions going
5: yeah, thanks. I mean, big picture um, molecules and pipes uh, to complement electrons and wires are are probably needed in our energy systems. Um, certainly, we have to, today uh, molecular energy systems and, and electricity. And so it's hard to see how the complete system works without, um, without both. Lots of good happening from pipe companies, um, gas utilities, and others toward answer. Um, I think some some encouraging early kinds of indications. But indeed, one of the basic decisions is whether to blend hydrogen into a natural gas system and or it might be both to uh, develop some hydrogen systems.
2: My understanding is the stationary um, market um, does allow for a certain amount of blending of natural gas and some of the power plants, especially, uh, and turbines that typically run on natural gas uh, are now able to run on hydrogen and that presumably has an impact on the distribution system. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I can jump in on that.
4: We're we're doing both. We're we're putting in in our production facilities, looking at supplying to the natural gas grid as well as the transportation. And and again, it goes back to that: uh, the bigger the volumes, the more integrated, the better the solution. And because uh, there's always so much balancing going on and, and lots of opportunities. So I think, as Mark alluded, the question on on how much we can use the whole natural gas assets is a matter of. Um, uh, percentage you know we're certainly not going to stick 100% all the hydrogen down the existing pipelines but some can take quite a bit some can't take as much and uh but it's a it's a huge asset that we need to to think through and utilize.
1: And I think when you look to the combustion um, applications whether that's in kilns or in turbines or whatever there's no fundamental technical barrier that I'm aware of to moving to 100% hydrogen. Obviously it requires specialized equipment for that and so on. But turbines running on hydrogen are being built. Uh, you can, you have, it can have 100% hydrogen burners. So there is a path to get to a 100% hydrogen gaseous heating system. Uh, but it will take a, a, a significant uh, investment in, in, in that end use equipment, whether it be a, a home furnace uh whether it be and else also in the pipelines to to move that um you know the, the, I think one of the as is mentioned by Wayne the the Canadian utilities are doing quite a bit of work there's a project starting up in in Markham um, anytime now to start blending hydrogen into the to the local gas grid uh, as Colin mentioned he's working on one here in uh, in, in BC so it's it, there's a lot of work being done to start laying the pathway for it and uh, i'm I'm an optimist but and that, these are not easy but I, I think if you look forward, there is a, a pathway to a 100% net zero gaseous heating system. And, uh, and I would encourage that we, we need to be doing lots of testing and lots of, of development to start moving that way, because, um, that will be a very cost-effective and viable solution for, for, for many, uh, for many people looking to, um, to have a, a net zero heating
2: system. Good. That segues into a, another question from the audience and, and, uh it's a good one because um, we often um don't think of 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 standard setting as as being such a critical part of, of the market, but in fact we we know that it is. Um and, and so who is setting the standards? Um it's how how far down the road in terms of the required standards that are that are going to be uh that are going to be needed um are we in in, in getting them out there and, and is is there a an overarching watchdog on this, uh, who, who's 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 making sure that all this is being done safely and that the standards are are both um, consumer oriented and public oriented, but also efficient.
4: Yeah, uh, I can maybe answer that. I mean, we're heavily involved in a lot of the codes and standards on a daily basis, similar to to Wayne's crew. Um, so there's a variety of different bodies that uh, deal with the gas, and, and I think yeah it's progressing very rapidly and very well um you know we're now more of the side of having to educate all the authorities having jurisdiction of what these standards are and which ones should be applied and and how they should be applied and interpreted because they don't really get the opportunity as much as say companies like ourselves that dive deep deep into these things so it did take a while to translate the Um, you know, the 100 years of of, uh, experience in hydrogen and industrial world to the consumer side of things. And that was sort of the, you know, partly why hydrogen took so long was it it had to go through those cycles, but they're now there. My engineers can rely on them and they can communicate with the authorities for the basis of design. So I wouldn't say there's one watchdog. There's different groups coming together, Um, but I, it's, I don't know if it's a barrier, is maybe just um, mm-hmm. an area that we need capacity to to move now that we know
5: what what has to be done. Wayne uh, is Wayne is that? Uh, you I, have I think, think about that's that? right. Yeah, I think that's right. It, it, it's an um, um, allocation of some capacity to some very important work. I, I would say we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. So, fueling a light duty vehicle uh, at 700 bar pressure with J twenty six hundred one protocol. These are These are global uh, standards, and it's easy to standardize the supply chain of nozzles and fittings, and and that that's all good news. It's unfinished business. The the um, high flow fueling of heavy duty trucks is um, continuing to improve as the standards get get figured out. Um, How will we fuel ships and airplanes, and so it it uh, and you know the previous conversation about um, hydrogen in pipelines, uh, dedicated or blended. So uh, clearly a lot of work that that is ongoing still, and I think in good uh, bodies, as Colin mentioned. So others will stand on our shoulders uh, several decades from now.
2: With that, we're going to have to wrap it up. I, I want to thank the audience for their questions. And I know there were there were a few that we didn't get to, but uh, as I said at the outset, we, we could be here. Uh, this is a, a massive area. Uh, we could be here all day um, on peeling away the layers of the onion. So um, thanks very much to the panelists for keeping it going. And, and over to you, Kelly. Thank you, Sean, and Mark, and Colin and
3: Wayne. And I'd like to introduce Bob LaRock, president and CEO of the Canadian Fuels Association, our partner in delivering this event to share some observations and appreciation remarks.
0: Bob. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, welcome everyone. And on the first day of COP26, very topical and insightful discussion today. And I'm really glad to have the opportunity to listen in. The Canadian Fuels Association created the Fuel for Thought speaker series. So that conversation like this one today could take place. And this is a very important topic for the future and of our economy and also our country. I enjoyed listening into the discussion today and I've got a couple of takeaways. Canada's hydrogen strategy has laid the foundation and will receive across the value chain. The key though, is how quickly we can implement so Canada can be a leading producer and user of hydrogen, to help reach our goals of zero. Number two is Canada's existing infrastructure and expertise, I heard talent asset today, are very strategic that can be leveraged to harness the potential that hydrogen has to offer. And three, we also need to be strategic and thoughtful. Thanks, Mark, for the concept of hubs. Heard a lot about it today, and I'm sure we'll hear about more. And integrate our transportation systems and policies to create the maximum benefit. A Couple of great quotes I heard today, it's not electric vehicle or hydrogen, it's boat. We need all options such as hydrogen, electric, biofuel." Hydrogen provides the GHG reduction needed and fast fueling capability. Thanks to our moderator, Sean, for keeping the conversation flowing and to our panelists, Wayne, Colin, and Mark for your insights. I think that all our viewers learned something today and we all walk away from this conversation with a better understanding of the potential of hydrogen for Canada's transportation sector. Thanks also to the Empire Club of Canada, our presenting partner and our host for Fuel for Thought series. We look forward to working together on other important topics and issues in the future. And finally, thanks to all the viewers that took the time to join the event today. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Back to you, Callie.
3: Thanks, Bob. And thanks again to the panelists and everybody joining us today or participating at a later date. Our next event is on November 10th at noon Eastern time. It's a special event in honor of Remembrance Day. We will be diving into the fascinating story of Canadians who became secret underground agents during World War II. Find out more about the Special Operations Executive and the Canadian connection to this team of spies that became the model for the CIA and inspired many post-war authors, including Ian Fleming, the creator of James Bond. More details and complimentary registration are available at empireclubofcanada.com. This meeting is now adjourned. Have yourself a great day, stay safe and take care.